Hello, and welcome back to Cold Pizza. We're here today with Pastor Matt again. Pastor Matt, say hi. Hey, guys. Uh, really enjoying our kickoff into Hebrews. Uh, I think that we're all excited to be back in a book for sure. Uh, but now that we are in here, we're getting to start to see how some of these uh, themes are going to unfold. We talked about with Pastor Jeff last week of that prophet, priest, and king, our threads that we have to carry with us the whole way through. It's really easy to lose some of those main pictures. And so I'm thankful that uh, we really picked up that thread really strong this past week. <laughs> and not say, oh yeah, you remember a few weeks ago that thing that Jeff said? So uh, the pictures that we got of Christ's rulership and who he is um, is super valuable. Again, because Christ is the only son of God. Because Christ is the only one worthy of worship and because he's on the throne. I think that throne one is one that we've been trying to emphasize a little bit more lately, especially even with the name change. Um, but that picture of the throne being upright, I think to me was one of the most impactful pieces um, from yesterday is is really recovering that language of righteousness, of uprightness, of integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things that we typically will remember back to particularly use with like David and, the, and his uh, kingship and kingdom. Um, and so recovering those and bringing them into the picture of Christ as that, and yeah. then what does that mean for us was, was super helpful. That loving righteousness, hating wickedness, all of that uprightfulness was, was super helpful. Yeah, I think we've, we, because the law has been written on our hearts, an objective moral authority, which we'll talk more about in a few moments, but because of that in Romans 1 tells us that that's been written on our hearts, we, we were created both with a longing for and a, a very fundamental or basic uh, understanding, or at least ability to recognize um, uprightness. Like there's the kind of a, uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, an instinctual measure to our beings where we uh, sense or recognize uprightness. And and we long for that. And it's we, a general conscience. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and we live in a world, though, that A, suppresses that and um, claims that all these other things are actually upright. Yeah. So. Yeah, that make, that, that's a big thing, because conscience is a universal grace that was given to all mankind, common mm-hmm. grace, but it is being suppressed or, at worst, seared. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we're we're finding is increasingly our culture is not it's not sufficient to just suppress the truth it has to be we have to really sear our conscience and, and say that it's not just to accept wickedness but it's to then celebrate it mm-hmm. yeah yeah you got to have a flag that represents it and make sure you fly it and have a month dedicated to it <laughs> so what are some ways that we can really take home this application of not just I think many of us are, as the kids would say, we think some things are sus when we encounter those <laughs> those things that alert the kids. our moral flags. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I found out that I'm I'm old a while ago. So yeah, some things are sus, and and we already feel those things. I think in our church context, at least. What are some ways, though, that we can really ramp up the loving righteousness aspect and, and see that reign in our family? 
Yeah, uh, loving righteousness and hating uh, hating wickedness. Um, kind of the way I approach almost every thing in teaching and um, in preaching is my my mind kind of immediately goes to a couple things. One, how might you already understand this in a terrible way, <laughs> to be honest? <laughs> Basically, I mean, as a teacher and as an influencer, as a shepherd, I'm trying to think, how has someone already taught you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then my second thought... Uh, well, my second thought is then how do I teach it correctly? And then, and then kind of outflowing from that second thought is uh, what does it look like practically? Sure. Like those, those generally my, I don't consciously think about those things. That's just, but that's how I process. Yeah, because the uh, reality with adults is you don't have that tabula rasa anymore. You don't have that clean blank slate. There is, yeah. There's something already marked down and it either needs to be corrected or yeah. altered. Yeah, it's not like um, you know, cooking with chicken, as you've said, is like a blank slate. Yeah. You just <laughs> add flavor to it. It's yeah. like chicken that's already been marinated in someone else's garbage. Yep. Uh, so now I gotta like do something with that marination, you know, that that marinade. Um, so with that, we we all come in, and and that's part of the struggle of preaching and teaching, particularly to a larger crowd, is you've got everyone's got their own marinade. So when I say the words loving righteousness and hate wickedness, mm, yeah. there's everyone's love and hatred there has been marinating in something for years or decades. Sure. So how do, how do I kind of, and I usually try to like pick the biggest targets and just go at it. Yeah. So with that, I, with the loving righteousness, hating wickedness, the, one of the things that came to my mind most, and some of this is just, been influenced by some recent readings, uh, the abolition of man and, and, uh, by CS Lewis and, and Joe Rigney's talk on the Tao. Um, if you have not listened to that, I'd encourage you to go find that. Um, but to, to, to think about loving righteousness and hating weakness, I think to first, we have to understand that we live in a world that denies that feelings and in our own interpretations of experience can be congruent or in or incongruent with objective moral reality and authority. So what I mean by that is is our culture now says <laughs> sorry. You just pulled a C.S. Lewis with C.S. Lewis stuff. Well, what was that? Your what I mean by that. <laughs> I is, think you said the other day that's just how I I talk anyway. Like that, I say something and then I I say it a different way. That's you doing what you were complaining C.S. Lewis does. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do all the time. Yeah. Yes. So what so, do you mean by that? What I mean by that. <laughs> so if if you have not caught onto this, y'all, in my my preaching, I, usually when I look down at my notes, I'm saying it in the most succinct, like most uh, sometimes the most academic way, at least that I can say it, and then I will explain it afterwards. So if you see me look down, you probably should write down. Uh, and then you should just listen the next few moments to actually understand what I just said. There you go. Um, so yes. So what I said was that our world, and I'll re-explain it here, that our world denies that the way we feel can be congruent or 
incongruent with an objective moral reality. So what would they affirm then? So they would affirm that my, uh, my feelings are reality and authoritative. Mm-hmm. So I used the example on Sunday, uh, or I think it was on Sunday, it was recently, where Lewis says, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man says that my, uh, I don't really like the society of young children. Oh, what's he mean by that? He means I don't really like being with young kids. And I, I think I said that. Did I say that yesterday? Sunday, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and then what he's saying, though, is that, that that's wrong. That is incongruent with what is morally right. Yeah. And our world is saying, is not just, is not saying, well, you, it's okay for you to feel that way. They're actually saying that an appeal to a moral objective authority is wrong, that -hmm. there is no measuring stick. All we have is chemical secretions from our brain that uh, are what we call feelings. Um, And as Rigney would say, that, that, uh, chemical secretions from our brain that we call feelings are being imposed on an indifferent universe mm-hmm. that there is, that's all there is. So, so if that's what's out there, then I, I had to ask the question, well, where is that? Is that a reality in our church? Um, because I don't want to preach to just something that's out there, but is that something that we've been tempted to uh, to give into, or that has already taken root in our people's lives? And and in my estimation, I, I I see it. Like I see that there are ways in which that rejection of an objective moral reality uh, has been bought into, even by our people. So. I, here's a few examples that that I came up with, I think, to, to kind of make this point. So a husband might say, well, my, my wife won't have sex with me tonight. Therefore, she must not love me, or she must not understand how hard my day was, or she only cares about the kids, or she only cares about this or that, right? And, and, and that... that thought, like those feelings in that moment, how many of us baptize that as truth? Mm. Right? How many of us in that moment, we then live the rest of the evening, or we look at our wife the next day as though that is gospel truth? Oh, I believe it, because my wife has held things against me that I did in her dreams. <laughs> so, Well, that so- sucks. Sorry, Jess. But it was your joke, so I'm running with it. I don't think I ever actually did that. <laughs> was that in a dream again? That's right. I'm just going to start blaming real things on dreams. <laughs> you should. I don't think I did that. I think that was in a dream the other night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's the question then. Is, is my feelings in that moment congruent with reality or incongruent with reality? And if you have ever just baptize that as truth, Yeah, that that is true of my spouse, then you have bought into there being no objective moral authority and your feelings are what there is. Mm-hmm. You are the moral objective. Authority. You, you are that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've succumbed to that. And, that, and that's, that's the thing. When I think of that and put it in that practical context, there, 
I can think of a lot of examples. Here's a few more examples that I had. Well, my husband, on the flip side of this, my husband say, There's once, a second side to this coin, yeah. <laughs> my husband wants to have sex with me tonight. He must not love me. He doesn't understand how hard my day was with the kids, or he only cares about his needs. Mm-hmm. Right? And if you baptize that in truth and call it truth, um, then, then you've bought into the, the, the same thing. And so if you've bought into that, you cannot love righteousness and you cannot hate wickedness unless there is a m- objective moral authority. Yeah. So to love righteousness, the way he's talking about there, is to say there is a reality that is objective by which if I do not love it, then my loving is incongruent with reality. Or if there is a hatred that's defined by this objective moral authority, then if I do not hate that wickedness, then my hatred is incongruent with reality. It does not line up appropriately with reality. And that was the the Augustine quote I gave on Sunday from the abolition of man. Virtue is the ordinate condition of the affections in which every object is accorded that kind of degree of love which is appropriate to it. Yes, absolutely. A couple more examples. Uh, uh, so so uh, I guess I don't have any more examples. Those are the two best that I could come up with. But, but So your feelings are either congruent with reality or they're incongruent. There's kids listening, so I'm going to have to replace that word with the word relations. <laughs> right. Thank, Just call it intimacy. intimacy. You want to be intimate with your spouse tonight. Trying to know her. Now, yes. but before that, you have to realize this congruent, incongruent. You have to realize that there, again, is this objective measuring stick by which to speak of uh, of whether or not a feeling is congruent or incongruent, and that was appealing back to the upright scepter mm-hmm. of the throne. There is a measuring stick. Yeah. But the world is rejecting is any measuring stick, and in addition to that, saying that any appeal to a measuring stick is necessarily oppressive. It's a, it's a power move. Well, even beyond that, at least from Abolition of Man, uh, which you brought up a bunch... Um, <laughs> They're going so far as to say that the object itself does not have an intrinsic value of its own. Yeah. It, it only comes maybe from my feelings, and I have that one, and you may have a different one. But to yeah. say that it is it has value of any kind based on its being alone is that full ontological denial in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But the world, then, their measuring stick is is pushing to say... It's similar to, again, I keep bringing that quote up from um, Sufficiency and Authority of Scripture from MacArthur, uh, that the world, as he's saying, has no room for certitude. That's all this that we're talking about right here. You can't be certain about anything. Um, And to be certain about something is to then be a power play and oppress um, either a person or or a group or or whatever it might be. Which Which is interesting because, you know... What the people in that camp, whether they realize they're in that camp or not, the only certitude that they can have is the certitude of how they feel in that moment. And then that becomes the measuring stick for everybody else, Mm -hmm. for all those around them. That's 
that's their moral authority. That's what they are certain of. I mean, that, that's how you can get an elder in a church who embraces someone else's feelings about someone else's morality and then call for their dismissal. Like that, that because the, the scripture is not the authority, there is no objective moral measuring stick. It's, it is the authoritative emotional experience of that person. Mm-hmm. And that's the judge and the jury. There's, there's no room. And then to appeal to a moral objective standard by which those feelings can be claimed as congruent or incongruent, yeah. then is called being dismissive. Mm-hmm. or it's called being oppressive or evasive or a power or even biblical <laughs> yeah. which is also not acceptable <laughs> yes so yeah that 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 is a very practical way that these things chase out and i think that's one of the challenges in dealing with something even to to the great thematic divides that you have in the sermon of his throne is upright well Awesome. <laughs> I can sing psalms about that and hymns about that, but but how do I bring uprightness home? And it really does divide all the way to, to the marriage bed, to the church structure, uh, to our actual individual everyday relationships. It touches all of these things. Yeah. You really have to ask. You really need to stop and ask, is my interpretation of this experience that I'm in right now, that, that I just this lunch I just had with this person, or this exchange I just had with my boss or this parental moment I just had with my child. My interpretation of that experience. Second, uh, in other situations, how I'm feeling right now. And ask, is this congruent or incongruent with reality? With an objective moral standard? Uh, is it congruent? So I, I'm feeling hopeless because today was just bad. It was a hard day. Is that thought congruent with reality? Well, if all there is to your reality is the circumstances of which you saw with your eyes, mm-hmm. then yeah, then your feelings are congruent with reality. But if your reality is more robust than that, meaning you know what the Lord says, and that the Lord sits on a throne, that He is there with an upright scepter, that He rules and reigns, that His that your uh, your sin will be hated as wickedness, and that the righteousness of Christ at work in you will be loved by that king that sits on that throne, and that he has made you his companion, for which you will enjoy the blessings and the oil of gladness for the rest of eternity. Well, then now all of a sudden, your hopelessness in that moment is not congruent with actual reality, because your reality was not based on a robust reality. It was not a fullness that's defined by the scriptures. By logos. Instead yes. of having an eternal logos, a word, we have the eternal word of yet. Yeah. I, I don't feel that yet. I might tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. Or right now. So I think in that moment you say, my hopelessness is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's based on a lie. It is not congruent with reality. Yeah. Well, that's, that's helpful in terms of category. So what are some ways then that we can actually have that oil of gladness and have it be that daily, um, a daily creed, a daily law that we follow. If we're under a, a king on the throne, 
Uh, it's not just that his throne is upright and that we need to love those things, but how do we not just see them? So you, you illustrated that already, but how do we how do we reinforce that in our own um, in our own vision? Yeah, um, I mean, we all live by some law of of uprightness. I mean, we, we whether or not you could sit down and write it out, I, I'm sure you probably could. I think we all could if we sat down and thought about it hard enough. You could write down your own creeds that you live by. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the danger is which creed and is it the right creed? Sure. Um, because you won't actually experience the oil of gladness unless you're living by the right creed. Mm-hmm. And we can slather on all the other kind of oils that we want to, um, thinking we're experiencing the oil of gladness mm-hmm. as a companion of Christ when we're just a companion of our own version of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to really think carefully through like my laws versus God's laws. Am I getting at the answer to your question? Yep. We have to think through what are my laws and God's laws. You know, because your evaluation of of your spouse's response or, be, or your boss's response is filtered through something. Yeah, and so that's that's what I'm getting at. Is what what is our filter? What is those? What are those lenses that we have? Yeah. Well, let's go back up to to the example of of my wife won't have sex with me or relations. Know, relations. Yes. Yes. That. Um, then if if I'm walking away saying, or she doesn't love me, blah, 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 like that whole phrase, then what's happening is I'm measuring that moment by my law. Mm-hmm. So that, or maybe not so that, but the net result of that is that now my feelings are congruent with the breaking of my law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what's happening. Um, now... The challenge is, is that we are free, as long as we're operating within God's laws, to have our own laws. So I'm free. I got, God has made the law that I am the ruler of my house. I am the king of my household. And as king of that household, I'm responsible for certain things. And then within that, I'm able to make my own laws. I'm able to say, well, bedtime is at this time, and we're going to eat dinner this way, and we're going to have this kind of food, and and uh, I, I'm allowed to make those kind of laws, um, and those are important laws. But the but the challenge is when when we elevate our laws over God's laws or neglect God's laws completely, or we let our laws be that which we measure reality by. Uh, like in the case with the the wife and relations, as you said. There you go. Um, Same as time and post. Now, now I'm really dangerous. I mean, really in really uh, in danger, rather. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, uh, I wrote down this thought. Some of us care more about how good our makeup looked than we cared about how controlled our emotions were. Oh, I'm free from that one, so thank you. <laughs> I was I was thinking about all of our men out there. 
trying to get out of these laws. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, is it good to care about how well your makeup looks? And you can set a law of different laws. Uh, I'm going to only have this much eyeliner on, and I'm only going to so, so use these, this much foundation. An important thing is when you're talking about laws, you're not just saying these in sense of preference, but actual, we, we really think righteousness comes from these things. Mm-hmm. Like we're doing these to get on the gods, which in this case is us, good side. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus caring about how controlled, again, our emotions were. Some of us care more about how much extra work we get done at the office than we care about how honest we were at the office. Uh, you see, again, it's okay to set up laws, our own laws, in addition to God's laws. We, we all do this, and we have the freedom to do that. But when you care more about your laws than God's laws, don't expect to be washed with the oil of gladness. Don't don't expect to have it. You're not you're not living as a companion yeah. with the Lord, uh, because His laws matter more, and they should rule us more. And 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 reality is is when you want to keep your laws over and above God's laws, then you might as well keep slathering the lavender around your neck because that's the best oil that you're going to get. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, that's it's one of the, the biggest difficulties is that right dominion actually does look like putting laws in place. Yeah. So, so that we... Good laws. Yeah, so that we are moving a community or a culture, whether it's our family or or churches, or, or businesses even, towards uh, a world and a business and a family that glorifies God. Like we're, we're about doing those things so that we meet the big standards. Um, but yeah, it is us taking that seat, mm-hmm. that throne, and it's now us who are the upright one. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Is there uh, any other ways you were thinking about taking this sermon? Um, just with all of the Old Testament references that it has. No, I usually for me in prep, once as I'm studying, usually a particular direction hits me and I don't usually change. Um, some of that's because I'm stubborn um, <laughs> and I don't want to redo everything. It's called intuition. <laughs> some of it I, I do just, yeah, kind of trust the initial first fruits that kind of come out of my study time. Um, yeah, I, I was one of the things I did have a. A hard time with was how much uh, and which Old Testament passages do I dive back into. Sure. So this coming Sunday, I, we're going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 102. Mm. That's, but that's really the that that's the only Psalm, uh, the only Old Testament passage that's really being referenced here in the last uh, in um, seven through, or sorry, ten through fourteen for this week. Uh, so th- that was hard. Um, yeah, but I think it's what you did so far. It was really valuable in, in helping set the expectations they had, and, it, and then I think helps us frame our expectations. I mean, even what we've talked about today, um, we have certain views, perspective, expectations of what uprightness is, of what wickedness is, of what laws that are good and bad look like, of, of what how mine interact with yours, and so the whole idea of expectations really comes into play here. Um, at the front end of Hebrews, before he even starts helping us see then how these things fill out the priesthood and the law and the sacrifices. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that, that idea of expectations um, is so key. I I have found, as someone who sits in a 
kind of lives in a, a vocation that's kind of a glass bowl or a glass house. Mm-hmm. Um, I face the expectations of other people so often. And so I have to ask, where is that expectation coming from? And is it a just expectation? So their feelings, their conclusion about me, um, is that congruent with an objective moral reality? And, uh, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And then, so that I'm not under the tyranny of their unjust rulership. Yeah. Well, then on the flip side of that, through this journey of thinking through these things, I've found the same thing with, with my own family and with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, is where do I have, um, maybe the, like the expectation I have is not morally wrong for them to meet that expectation, but I've created this expectation in my own head that is my law that is unjust for me to hold it There's as a difference, an ex- difference between it being morally right and morally necessary. Okay. Them, yeah, right? yeah. 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 I think it's good. This is something that would be good for them to do. It's also not something that they must do. Yes. So back to the, uh, the relations thing, it would be morally <laughs> right for my wife to have relations with me tonight. Yes. Um, it's not morally necessary for her to have relations with me tonight. Yes. Yet. Yet. <laughs> she brings us full circle, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for uh, closing and, us out with uh, some intersectionality. Yes. As a pastor who lives in a glass bowl. Well, as a podcast host, I'm going to <laughs> close us out. I hope that this has been helpful. Um, bringing these things down to, to that executing level of how do I think about this in the car? How do I think about this at the table? Um, this can be, in some ways it's a big leap and in other ways it's not, uh, I, I, to where you started, we all kind of do this already. And it's just a matter of actually taking the time and having eyes to see what we're already after. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you guys for uh, joining us this week. We hope it has been helpful. Please let us know if you have uh, any questions or things that we can kind of tackle on here uh, to really kind of peel back different layers of Hebrews or as we're trying to bring some of these applications home. Uh, But with that, I want to encourage you to go no love and obey. Jesus is Lord of all. We'll see you next week. See you guys.